Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the Nigel Neal's Beasts episode, What Big Eyes. Inspector Bob Curry of the RSPCA is playing hard with Mr. Jeeb, a local animal trader. He doesn't like the way he treats the animals in his care, and he's come checking up on him after a cheetah died in transit the week prior. He goes through his books, looking for something suspicious, and he thinks he finds it. In the last 18 months, three European wolves have been sold, supposedly to a small pet shop on Westbury Road. It's the kind of place that deals in kittens and hamsters, not wild animals. Curry thinks this is a false paper trail to cover up something more nefarious. Visiting the pet shop, he first meets the meek Florence Rimmel, the shopkeeper, and is surprised to learn that it's true that this shop did take delivery of three European wolves. She cannot or will not answer why, and merely says, You'll have to talk to my father, the owner of the shop, about that. Her father, Leo Remo, rarely talks to people, but Curry insists and is granted an audience. Remo isn't particularly kind to him and demonstrates clear contempt for his daughter's intelligence. He is a frail old man, but after admitting that he purchased the wolves, legally, for himself, he kicks Curry out. Back at the station, Curry consults with his boss, Chief Inspector Nash. He knows about Remo. He's a crackpot scientist with weird ideas about how Darwin got evolution wrong. Curry, now more worried about the welfare of the animals than ever, rushes back to the shop, which is closed for the night. Florence lets him in, but won't let him talk to her father. Curry really upset him earlier. She may be an idiot, she knows, but her father is a genius, and she can neither understand his work, nor is she willing to try to tell Curry what it is. Surprisingly, Bremont shows up and invites Curry in. This time, he's welcoming. He wants to tell him about his work. He is bitter that he is where he is instead of addressing the Royal Society with his theories. He quizzes Curry a bit to see if he's even intelligent enough to understand the work. Apparently satisfied enough, he attempts to explain it to him, rather contemptuously. Inside the genetics of every mammal is a history of everything that came before, all the way back to the origins of mammals before they'd even decided what form they'd take. Given that premise, Remel thinks lycanthropy is possible. The turning of a man into a werewolf. Werewolves are real, he argues. The legends are mistellings of the original facts. The legend of Little Red Riding Hood isn't about Grandma being replaced by a wolf. It's about Grandma transforming into a wolf. He shows Curry his lab and his dissection table. Yes, he bought the wolves and he used them in his experiments. He extracted some fluid samples and he humanely euthanized them and conducted work on their bodies, disposing of them afterwards. 
all in accordance with regulations. Now, Raymond is close to the culmination of his experiments and his vindication when his hypotheses are confirmed. He has been injecting himself with a series of serums derived from his blood mixed with material from the wolves. Soon, he will transform into a wolf. Curry thinks him mad, and when the old man collapses, he makes to call for an ambulance, convinced he's given himself septicemia. His daughter stops him, but Curry elicits a promise from her that she'll call a doctor. And he leaves, very disturbed by the madness he's witnessed. The next day at HQ, Curry is telling Chief Inspector Nash about Raymond when a tip comes in by phone. That pet store took delivery of another European wolf just this morning. Curry rushes back there. The shop is empty, but in the house, Raymond is laid out on the sofa, nearly incapacitated. In the back, Curry finds a caged wolf still alive. Raymond, delirious, howling along with the wolf, threatens Curry not to interfere with him at the final stage of his experiment. He's also talking to himself as if he's addressing the Royal Society and retelling the tale of Little Red Riding Hood. He convulses and dies. Curry covers him with a sheet. Looking at his lab notes, Curry sees that Raymond has injected the pregnant she-wolf with serum from himself as part of his process. Horrified, Curry returns to the wolf and euthanizes it. Nothing more he can do, he leaves Florence alone with her father's corpse. Later, Curry returns to retrieve the body of the wolf. He finds the pet shop destroyed. Continuing into the house, it's trashed too, and he hears the sounds of destruction from the lab. Inside, Florence is destroying everything. She sacrificed her life to her father. He was a genius, and she was an idiot, and she wanted to see him achieve the greatness that he deserved. But now she sees that he was just a mad old man that kept her down, destroyed her self-confidence, belittled her, and ruined her life in pursuit of his madness. She shouts at the covered corpse, which is still lying on the sofa, and then the sheet covering the body starts to move. Suddenly, she believes again. Curry is dumbstruck. Florence pulls the sheet back to reveal the dead body of her mad father exactly as they left it. The end. Okay. Uh, what big eyes? What do you think of this one? I, I rather liked it. Um, I'm not. I'm not quite sure why. Looking back on it, <laughs> because when. I don't know. When when you sort of go through the synopsis like that, it doesn't quite capture what was so great about it. And I think I think it's the performances. I think it's I think it's Michael Kitchen and Patrick McGee and I mean at, well and the writing. I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of great uh, you know, all the kind of the the ponderings that that uh, that Raymond has on on family and on mm. on the, on really, I guess the difference between um, humans and beasts, and the way the way he treats his daughter, which is obviously central to the whole the whole piece. It's positively um, beastly. Yeah. It, well, exactly. the 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 right the writing for him was absolutely terrific. I thought, but also so were the performances, and so really that was that was kind of. I guess that was the core of it for me. I I I agree. I thought this was very very good. It it's amazing that you can watch what is effectively uh, an hour of people talking 
I mean, just pontificating mostly. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's a, a, a very lot of explaining and, and exposition and, and it's riveting. And all through that, and I think this is possibly, in a way, this is the brilliance of this one to me, is that I could, again, I'm sure we talked about that. I could see somebody being in this situation and being there, f <sighs> believing in that final moment, right? Even Curry, who is absolutely exactly right on the mark. The man is mad, <laughs> right? He comes in, he assesses him. The man is mad. The daughter believes he's a genius. The audience, you can be forgiven for believing that when she pulled that back, there would be something different about the dad. I mean, there are just points along the way where you go, wow, it, it happened. He really is a werewolf. The shop is trashed. He came back to life and destroyed everything. You, you, you know, he's in the lab smashing things right now as a wolf. Um, the I, I don't quite understand how they can justify the sheets moving at the end. But yeah, I, 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 till the very last, till they pull that sheet back, I had no idea what exactly I was going to see under that sheet. I was convinced it was going to be something, but instead it was just a reveal of, you yeah, know, this guy was a, a mad, uh, a madman, and he destroyed his daughter. And so he was a monster, but yeah, it, 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 it's good. I don't know. I, I might think this is the best of the bunch so far, but it, it, it turns it turns out that it it's all about what what his passing does to her so you, by the by the time you're getting into that reveal the what ha what happens what happens when you put when you pull back the sheet all it could do all it could do would be to undermine the the, the climax that you've already had because the uh, i mean obviously the 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 core of the episode are the exchanges between uh, Kitchen and, and McGee. But Mad Ryan is really, really powerful in those final scenes, you know, mm -hmm. smashing the lab and and uh, just the the sense of betrayal that she manages uh, mm -hmm. that she manages to convey. And also what's so pathetic about it, of course, is that she has herself made a choice to to believe him to go along with him and she's absolutely furious with herself for for having done that as well as you know her her fury at him so what you what you get in the in the final moments of the the show with the reveal are it's about it's about it's about her going through all of that and then and then, and I, and I think the way you justify the movement of the sheets is that that's what she thought she saw. It 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 was a moment where, after all that, she would still have just forgotten about it all, forgotten everything he did to her, if it had been proved that he was he was right, that he was this great man all along, which is just just absolutely tragic in itself. So I think by that point it's not really it's no, it's no longer really about the paranormal dimension of the show because the paranormal dimension has none of the drama that the human dimension has at that point. Earlier in the show it's interesting there's obviously you know the discussions about 
lycanthropy and Red Riding Hood and everything else that the the kind of philosophy of the the, the two men hang on their completely different views of the world and it's and it's interesting to switch back and forth between one and the other imagining you know what if one is right what if the other is right but i think by the time you get to the the reveal the real climax of the episode has already has already shifted to to uh to florence and and what he did to her well uh, i i i i don't disagree i mean that is that is what we've we come to at the end. Um, I, I would go so far as to say is that there is no actual paranormal aspect to this story. No, either. Th- th- this is a story of madness that the writing is good enough and the performances are good enough that you could believe up, up to the moment that it was going to be a paranormal story. And we have seen things in beasts that are potentially paranormal. So you, you certainly forgiven to believe well, it. Definitely paranormal. From the, I mean, right from the start. So, uh, but we've also the, had the fact that there's where none, there was no paranormal, right? Or, or like with the dolphin, is there really paranormal there, or is that just all in their in their heads? Yes. I, I don't know. But in this, it is clearly no, no all in their heads. Yes. But <laughs> again, I, I've I've said this on on past podcasts. You've got to, when a character, a grounded character in a show is presented with something that is paranormal seeming, right? I, it's, it's a, it's a tricky bit of writing to, to get me to convince that they should believe it, right? It's easier for me to believe it's going to be a ghost story because I went into it watching it knowing it was going to be a ghost story. I knew it was going to be a... Uh, and monsters fiction. and paranormal and yeah and it's fiction you know that but the person in the story is supposed to think it's the real world and and i you know i i like that bit scully is the perfect example here is somebody that goes into a world that we know is paranormal but she maintains that i need some i need proof but eventually enough proof convinces her and and you can believe that you can believe that journey. You could believe yourself in that journey as a real person. And, and, and then you, then you have the people who are in a story who keep denying it, despite the evidence of their eyes. And this, this is the nice thing that Scully didn't do. They always, they always manipulated it in such a way that she didn't see the most paranormal aspects of it, that, that she saw the periphery of it. And so she could always, she could always kind of write it off or not all always, but you know, towards certainly towards the beginning, she could write this off as being potentially something else and rightly so. But there's always that character who sees it, experiences it with their own eyes and they still deny it because it's not real. And those are uncharacteristic. And I thought in a way, I thought that's what Curry was going to be in this story. He's the guy that, isn't getting the clue when he walks in the door that the shop is trashed, that maybe there was something to his crazy plan after all. And, and of course it wasn't. So Curry was right from the word go and all the way through the end of the episode. But that just, it really, really played with my expectations, played the characters right. And uh, yeah, no, it was, it was really 
really good. I, I, I have nary a complaint about this story. Um, so I have one small complaint. And, okay. And it's a production thing, really, but it is partly because it does play with your expectations, but it plays with your expectations in a way that is almost fourth wall breaking. It, it, oh. it, makes, you, it makes you wonder which way Nigel Neal is going with this even okay. more than 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 what the what the characters are going to do or believe you you kind of think well what is what is he going to do with the characters which which side of this argument is he going to come down on and that's fine i don't have a problem with that at all but the way it was shot oh hold on after Okay, go ahead. I, I thought of one complaint, but go go ahead. <laughs> I think we might be on the same path. Go. After go McGee dies, yes. Kitchen tells Ryan that he has passed away. Yes. And we get a a view quite you know, we, we it, it's mm. a shot that is held for quite a long time and then repeated yep. where you okay. where McGee this is, is still in shot. Yep, and, and he's obviously breathing, breathing something and, fierce. Yes, and not not only that, but it's quite obvious that at the very least, Kitchen can see that he is breathing. Yes, because yes. of where he's standing, or he, it would be very hard. It would be very hard for him to be unaware that he is breathing. So that was the one thing. Yeah, immediately, I'm starting to wonder: Does he really believe he's dead? And I'm also thinking. Are we supposed to understand that he's not dead? Because we can certainly see that he's not dead. So it could there could be a kind of dramatic irony going on there. And so that there are a couple of possibilities there already within the kind of dramatic framework of get of, of guessing, you know, which way or which way this or that is Neil going with the story. And the third possibility is obviously this is a massive production boo-boo, which you kind of want to dismiss because it would be so easy to shoot it in. A, even if uh, e- even if McGee is un- unable to not breathe and even if they can't find a set of pillows that are roughly the right shape to substitute yeah. for him in the, in, the, you know, in the subsequent shots, they could at least frame it in such a way that he's not in it for most, or that, or that you know, at least can't see his torso and the sheet moving up and down. It's hard to imagine how they could both have not noticed that and not found another way to shoot it. Yeah, all right. I'll, I like, yeah. As as you said, the one complaint that that was the thing that popped into my mind. And there's there's another aspect to it. Nobody bothers to check. And I think, yes. right? I mean, oh yeah. Well, he's dead, obviously. He had septicemia. Oh, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. I mean, I see him breathing like crazy there, but he's dead. That's dead. Uh, so that actually does lend a little credence to the fact that the audience is supposed to think he's still alive. Because surely, you know, check a pulse. Anything. I, I... Yes, that, that does. But, but, it, but the fact that he's breathing, it is, that's going to make us think that he is alive. He is alive and he is transforming. That's right. It it is a it's a thing. Yeah. Well, he he is I, alive whether he's transforming or not. I mean, if that's not a production 
cock-up. And, and by the time the story has played out, it's pretty clear to me it is a cock-up. But if it's not a production cock-up, he is alive all the way through. Yeah, if he, if he, all this would have been dispelled if Curry had reached down and checked a pulse. But he didn't. And that feels, that does feel like that was intentional. I have it in my notes as I watch through. I mean, it's like, and he dies. Or we still breathing. <laughs> like that's, that's what my notes say. He is still breathing. Does nobody notice he's still breathing? <laughs> Just because he's breathing. I mean, bigly. Bigly. Wow. There's nobody, a word. No, nobody notices he's breathing because in the drama, he's not breathing. It's, it's purely, it's, that's in, the actor yeah. breathing. That's not the character breathing. And so, you know, we are, we are seeing the sets wobble. We are seeing what's going on in the wings. It's, it, it's something that you can suspend your disbelief over if you're given a clear indication that you should be suspending your disbelief. The problem is we're not given any such indication. And because of the twisty nature of the plot, it's part of what the show is doing, playing with our expectations around that. So we, it's all the more reason why we need to be told, no, this is, this is, this is, not, this is not a clue. This is not something that's part of the drama. And I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I genuinely don't know. I could... I could potentially see the director intentionally showing you the set wobble and therefore it's not a set wobble uh, as a, as a, as a red herring, but it, it would be an unusual, as you say, it would be like breaking the fourth wall. It would be, it would be, it, it it's, but it certainly did add in my mind some belief that he was turning into a wolf watching that. I'm like, I'm also kind of shouting at him on the screen. Can't you see he's still breathing? And so, I don't, I don't know. I, I brilliance or brilliance or screw up. It's I, not. It's not. If if it was brilliance, well, it's not. It's not brilliance. Here's the contradiction. If it's deliberate, if he is still alive, then he's alive all the way through the scenes where Florence is smashing up the. Yep. lab and everything and he's he's alive when she's leaning over his body giving that big speech and he, she's and he's alive when she pulls back the sheet from and it and his face there and when the credits roll in fact mm -hmm. he's still alive at the end of the show which basically undercuts the drama so if it's not a cock-up it's a bit of a rubbish ending so either way it's not brilliant well, I did not notice his breathing after he returned. No, so when he Curry so came back to get breathing. the body, I it certainly it. wasn't as obvious as he was. I mean, it was it was really that that was the that was the illusion of somebody who was like not even trying to. <laughs> that's like letting the dead body blink. It was it was so obvious. Um, it, it was it was very clear. Um, and as I say, it was very irresponsible of it was very irresponsible of Curry just to see a guy potentially pass out on a sofa and go, ah, he's dead, cover him up and then leave, come back. What seems like hours later, didn't didn't you know, did anybody call any authorities and say, hey, dead guy, nothing <laughs> just just really. And of course, as they're as as you're hearing, as you're 
the, the sheet is moving. We're hearing the sound of a wolf over this thing, which yes. is in their mind. Uh, it's, or in it's, the yard. Right. And then that's another one. I kind of halfway thought there might be the potential that when he goes out there, the cage has been smashed open and there's no wolf anymore. Um, yeah, I, just, I wondered. Yes, I wondered whether that 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 would be a twist that, that you know, the wolf, the wolf turned into a, a we are human in effect. Yeah. So I, I don't know, but I, I did, I did really enjoy it. Uh, the story, it just was, yeah, it, it was, it was, a, it was a compelling piece of writing. Yes. Another thing I'm not going to, I'm definitely have not done enough research to say this is a fact. So caveat this with 10 minutes of searching on the internet. I couldn't find, I, I have heard through parts of my life um, that the little red riding hood story is a werewolf story, but I couldn't find anything older than this that said that. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I'd never even heard it, but uh, there's at least so, one I mean, film out there that now, like from the eighties or nineties that, that went with that premise, but, but this could be the origin of it. It's, possible but boy am i putting that in air quotes because <laughs> i have heard that for a long time but then you know there are there are tropes in science fiction which we've heard all our lives and they turn out they're nigel neal so <laughs> yeah <laughs> this might be another one might be i i found all sorts of ancient different variations that it's a that's a story of the passing of winter and or day and night or winter and spring and 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 girls menstruating and uh sexual awakening and all sorts of various interpretations but it's not until i hit one in the 80s that i see anybody did anything with with it being a werewolf which is odd because there's absolutely no reference to this in there either so like in so for example in wikipedia so uh I, I I'm reasonably convinced that my my uh, Google foo uh, has more than likely failed me, or that the information's not there. But I couldn't find it in a short. I was expecting to find that being debunked. Debunked. I wanted to figure out where that came from. Or you know, somebody's 1857 analysis said this was a werewolf, and I got oh well, there we go. That's where he got it from. But I couldn't. But he, he... so. I mean, the thing was, he was he was specifically saying that the 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 fairy tale is is wrong. That the yeah. mind you, I, I guess this you know this could be his way of this could be Neil's way of making it look like Raymount was originating this theory. But he's he's specifically saying the fairy tale is wrong. The fairy tale has it that the that the grandmother is eaten by the wolf and the wolf takes her place, and that's the version that I had always heard and never really questioned. And so I loved that idea and I loved the, the kind of enthusiasm with which he he related it. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 certain, it certainly suggested that what I understand, which is that this, the, the accepted version of the story is that it is not a werewolf story. I agree that the accepted version is not. It's just some people have put that spin on it. But um, but oddly enough, yeah. there are an awful lot of spins on it. Uh, and I, I, it's the heck probably possible that people, 
it, it's not a huge leap. What's nice about it as a theory is that it is that it fits the facts, as it were. Um, obviously, there has been some dissembling going on in the retelling if it's if the werewolf version is true, but it's still not a big is not a big leap. And because yeah. of the similarities, you can imagine different people might have independently come up with those parallels yeah. without one being an influence on the other. And and I think I think at least one variation on Little Red Riding Hood, instead of putting on grandma's clothes, the wolf puts on grandma. Now that sounds like puts, the kind the kind of thing where the where the traditional fairy tale is sanitized to make yes. it less horrific. Yes. Yeah, it puts on grandma's skin, basically. Yeah. So nice. <laughs> so I, I you know you could you could take the step there of of a wolf bursting out of the skin of grandma as the werewolf connection. Yeah. That that's one way to interpret it. And uh I I mean I can I can see it. So it it's not too much of a stretch to say that this was around before this story, but at the same time, I, I'm willing to give Neil, I'm tentatively willing to give Neil yet another piece of <laughs> um, uh, the lore that that some of us have heard over the years come back to him. So, yeah, I don't. Were we supposed to get anything from this story concerning the RSPCA angle? Or was that just a way to get it, get him into the story? In in what sense? I mean, it like seemed to Neil me he... is telling us something about animal cruelty, or or that he's making a point. I, like I Bob Holmes this. was about vegetarianism in the Two Doctors. Um, you know, just well, I don't think it's quite that polemical. I the the sense I got from it was that he was broadly very sympathetic to those people who were working on animal welfare i think that curry is a character who is portrayed as being zealous and zealotry is sometimes quite uh that's seen as being quite a negative thing he's obviously extremely single-minded and he's willing to step beyond the bounds of his actual official authority in order to get what he wants on the other hand is he that is, why? Well, I was just going to say he he is extremely polite and charming in the way he does it. He doesn't do it in a in a violent or aggressive way, and so the sense I got from it, and and also from the fact that Nash is is quite a sort of jolly and supportive character, that the the RSPCA guys are okay. Well, I think that's fair. I mean, <laughs> not certainly would hope that they're portrayed sympathetically in, in the course of things. Um, I, um, I, I'm wondering, do you think that that was something that, that Raymond saw in Curry? Because obviously he too is a zealot and as a single minded and, you know, to take him into his confidence, that, that probably is the part of the story that I don't know. I don't exactly say weakest, but it, it did feel like a little bit strange that he would go from in the afternoon, get the heck out, to, oh, heck, come on in, I'll tell you my whole life story. Um, unless he just, he saw something in Curry that I think he, I think he it. saw something in Curry, but I'm not sure it was quite the same as a, 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 um, 
a, a kindred zealot. I think uh, it Curry was more... is willing well, to. I should say break. Not exactly break the rules, but I mean, he's willing to go the extra mile. He's willing to do things that not really he's supposed to do. To well, I don't to, think he does to, break the rules, but I th- but I think what he does is he go is he is he's he's not just a job's worth. He's doing he's doing the job because it matters and it's important, and he's going beyond the authority of the job because it matters and is important to him personally. To to protect the animals, in effect, I I wonder, in terms of of maybe what Raymount sees in him, is that to suggest that it that it is because he because he has this kind of single minded approach to it that would for it, for him to explicitly recognise that that would require a degree of self awareness on Raymount's part that he himself is a that job and that <laughs> um and that and that curry's curry's cause is somehow uh, there is an equivalence with his which i'm not sure i even recognize because i think that that you know raymount is pursuing this this incredibly intellectual idea um about i mean it it it, it, it is a kind of scientific pursuit even though it's completely nonsensical mm-hmm. whereas what curry is doing is more born from a a moralistic perspective it's it's more about how he that i guess that it that he that he feels the animals have rights and deserve protection which i'm not saying is is wrong and i'm not saying it's not based on evidence derived from a, a scientific approach but it's not it, it doesn't certainly doesn't come from that alone and I and I I but I I think that Raymount does see a kin, well maybe not a kindred spirit, but he but he, but he does see something in Curry. But I think it's probably and and I'm, I I wouldn't completely dismiss the idea that he does make that connection in terms of the, the single mindedness, but just not consciously. But I I think probably what he also sees is here was someone who took an interest. Um, sad as that seems, mm. Curry's interest okay. was because he thought that Raymount was doing something illegal and unethical. Although he may not have been doing something illegal, but nevertheless, <laughs> my next question. Yeah. Never, nevertheless, he was he was taking an interest, and clearly, one of the things that Raymount wants, you know, from the speech he gives at the end, is. Is recognition that's that's right. that's clearly important to him, and I think the other thing that he sees in Curry is he's a male, and there's clearly a, a strong uh, streak of, of chauvinism running through Raymount, and so he obviously he could have the kinds of intellectual discussions he has with Curry with his daughter, but he doesn't see her as being worthy of that. Yeah, I mean. We don't see anything in the course of this episode, or I don't think we see anything in the course of this episode that that would lead us to believe what the intelligence of the daughter is, because you know your self worth is not necessarily tied up in your intelligence. Very intelligent people can have a very low self worth of themselves yeah. or, or low. So I mean, she might be. 
Raymount might actually be intellectually gifted. Mad, but intellectually gifted. I mean, they're not, those things are also not mutually exclusive. So, okay. you know, he, he might actually be, um, or have been at some point, uh, a highly intelligent individual. And it's possible that his daughter truly doesn't measure up, uh, or it's possible that he just beat, beat it out of her. He clearly has a similar attitude about his late wife. See? He, very clear, basic. Also, I guess. Uh, but you know, as he puts it, um, my daughter is just as I think he said, my daughter is just as dumb as my wife was, but without all the the benefits. Uh, which at least, at least we went there and said there were no benefits going on with his daughter. Mm. Um, th that at least encouraged me slightly. Um, what I was going to ask was, did we see anything? illegal in this episode because i think that was those were probably the points where i was thinking neil was telling us something that it, it it's unclear to me whether or not the cheetah at the beginning was in a truly inadequate crate by regulation or and was it just curry that wanted them to put it in a bigger crate with two sides of ventilation because he cared about the animals, but the law does not that, that the pet shop owner can buy wolves legally, that he can euthanize them and conduct experiments on them legally. As you say ethically, maybe another question, but, but legally they kind of came back to it time and time again, nothing illegal was done here. And I you kind of look at it and I, I feel like you're supposed to come away from this going, that ought to be illegal <laughs> kind of thing. So, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether it was actually, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as if it was definitively shown. Well, I obviously I'm not familiar with the conveyance of cheetahs, 1976 regulations. Right. Um, Which probably came from a 1952 act that, you know, the, yeah. There was, there was, it seemed to me, a little bit of um, interpretation going on. And mm -hmm. it felt like when Curry was called on it, he, he, he was saying, no, this is regular. It felt when he was called on it, he was, he was on slightly shaky ground. He was having to justify himself in terms of saying, well, if you do this, this will be the consequence in terms of you know, last time you had a you had a cheetah in a crate and it suffocated, and you were responsible for that, even if you had, you know, the regulation one grill or whatever. And that was that was that was notable repeatedly. He would he would say something like, "I want to see your books." And, yeah, and she would say, he would say he authority would to he do. would say it in a way that implied that he was simply demanding to see the books you know this as is my as is my right as an inspector show me your books that was the that was the sense of how he how he was saying it the first time and then then when he was called on it he's he changed his position to um i'm i'm asking you please can i see your books you know in other words turning it turning it around into a request so it wasn't entirely always clear to me what was the precise legal position and 
I, I got the impression that he did not have the right to see the books. I mean, I, I think he oh, was he, certainly he, not right. in that case. Certainly not. Certainly and the fact that, that Jeeb handed him the books anyway, you know, you, your my first thought is, okay, well, if he's just going to voluntarily hand me the books, I don't have to fight for him. Then he he knows he's done everything by the book, and it's no problem. But of course, Curry's first response is to think well if he's going to show me the books obviously they're doctored because this guy's <laughs> must be cheating right i mean that's exactly what he goes looking at those books for is proof that he's been doctoring the books and when he finds that oddity of the wolves being delivered to a weird pet shop he can't say you're not allowed to deliver wolves to a pet shop or anything like that because the, the paperwork says the wolves came in, the wolves were quarantined, and the wolves went to a pet shop. It just looks weird. And so he's off on his way. Again, it all feels like, no, this is perfectly legal. It's like if a pet shop in 1975, Britain, wanted to buy a wolf and sell it to somebody, that's fine. That's not even legal here. <laughs> I, I, I know for a fact, having owned a wolf once, <clears throat> um, that that's not that that's not uh that that's not legal and let me rephrase that a wolf hybrid is legal but a wolf is not and i've had a wolf hybrid so, so what you disguised it as a hybrid oh yeah it was a hybrid yes no it, it definitely Same was anymore. a hybrid Same Same anymore. Uh, they make terrible pets by the way i'm just gonna say this right now <laughs> sweet disposition uh, uh the one that i had sweet disposition but destructive wow chewed everything dug everything just just not a not a not a, a not a don't get a pet don't get them as a pet i rehomed it for somebody but <laughs> don't don't do it but um uh anyhow so yeah i just i just kind of felt like there was and and you know going back to buddy boy i, I don't think we're in any way shape or form supposed to look at that story and not think that what they did to those dolphins, not not just the domination stuff, but the trapping them in the pens and the dolphinarium and whatnot mm. was was horrible. But obviously it was legal because he had insurance for it and he had the theater and people came to see it. It's totally within the bounds of the law, but obviously not not ethical. And and so it just that, that this theme comes back here uh, to me, or it seemed like it came back here to me. There was one other thing. Did did you at any point think that maybe instead of a Raymond, it was the daughter that he'd been using to conduct experiments on? I, when yes, when he said um, who was convenient, I thought uh oh, but okay, only for a second. Okay, because I. Well, he could have been conducting them on both of them, himself and her. Yes, I suppose, yes, yes. Um, because, you know, once he quote-unquote died, <laughs> and then, you know, he comes back and finds the shop wrecked, I was back on the he became a wolf, she became a wolf kind of mindset. So, yeah. yeah. Let's see. Uh, I don't know that I have anything else. No, I, I don't think I do either. So I mean, enjoyable and uh, a, a definitely a, a a lovely piece of acting and and dialogue writing. So I, I would definitely recommend this episode of Beasts. Um, and and no no woman having sex with a dolphin, which 
even if it's just in her mind, there was none of that. So I'm I'm much better, much happier with this. Hmm. <laughs> well, in that case, what is the next one uh, up? Do you know offhand? Is it is it? Uh, well, you if you know. can remember any either. any remaining titles, it's that one. It's it's called the Dummy. Yes, that was it. It was about a dummy. Okay, and I think that's. I don't know. Bernard Harsfall is in that one. Mm-hmm. Chancellor Goth from The Deadly Assassin. The Deadly Assassin. So looking and Clive forward. Clive Swift from um, oh, what's the one with Kylie Minogue in it? The the, the, the Titanic. Christmas. The, yes, the Christmas the, Titanic. The Christmas Titanic. Oh dear! It wasn't my favorite episode. My brain has just wiped the title from from. My wow, mind. that's that's funny. It's it has managed to. Uh, yeah, it has managed to now completely Voyage skip my mind. There we go. No wonder we couldn't think of it. It had neither Christmas nor Titanic in the title. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like Christmas aboard the Titanic better. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe we can get him to rename it post post hoc. Um, <laughs> Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. Listeners. I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, we look at the Star Hunter Redux episode, Blacklight, in which the checkered wartime past of the trans-utopian comes back to haunt her crew. <laughs>